Hello and welcome to the Student Council, an educational advice podcast made for students and by students where everyone is qualified to talk about their own experiences. My name is Carter Dvorak and today I am so excited to be joined by Professor Julian Womble, alumni of Drew University, Ohio State University, and the University of Maryland, and a current assistant professor at George Washington University. You know him from his incredibly insightful class on Harry Potter that you might have seen on TikTok. That is, if you haven't seen it, go watch it, go check it out. But without further ado, thank you, Professor Womble, for coming on the show today. I'm so excited to chat. How have you been? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. What have been, before we get into anything, your favorite five minutes of the past week? Oh, that's so easy. I saw Beyonce in Toronto, and it was not even just five minutes, two and a half hours. Just amazing. I'm so happy. Like, that seems like, again, such a fun concert to go to. And like you said, she's a master of her craft. Yeah, she really is. Truly. Yeah. Uh, All right. Now I want to dive into I love just talking to everybody of like academic experiences, the schools that they've gone to and all that you have a large roster of schools that you both attended and taught at. And so at first, I'm just curious, like walking through your time as a student, you earned a bachelor's, master's and a doctorate in political science and government. How was that experience? How did kind of the level of study affect your time at each of those colleges? And like, what would you say about your time at Ohio State, Drew, and University of Maryland? Sure. So um, Drew is a very, very small liberal arts school in New Jersey, and it looked and felt very much like my high school um, in that it was very kind of intimate and you really get to know a lot of the professors there. So that was really, really great. And it was because of one of those professors who was my advisor at the time who invited me to do a program at Duke University that worked to um, produce uh, PhDs of color in political science. And so I ultimately did that program the summer after my junior year and applied to um, PhD programs. And then I started at Ohio State, um, which is ultimately where I got my master's before um, transferring to the University of Maryland College Park, where I finished my degree, my PhD. Um, And I think each place kind of provided a very different experience. So like I said, Drew was very kind of small and intimate and Ohio State was the exact opposite. (laughs) Yeah. and um, University of Maryland was kind of, it's very it's a very large state school, but it was very different in that I think um, it still has a way of creating a level of kind of one-on-one uh, with students. And I think, you know, I grew up in Maryland, it's where I live now and it's where I grew up. And so it was cool to be home. Um, but yeah, and so I think each place kind of offered a very different perspective of college um, and kind of the higher education in both size and scope um, and thinking of, and location right and so we have mm-hmm. new jersey we have ohio columbus um and then we have uh we have a uh, college park and so yeah so i think i think each place kind of showed me a different way of thinking about what college can be like and the kind of highs and lows and the perks of those things yeah do you still like stay kind of connected or like visit or go back for any like events at any of the schools so i go to drew quite often um i have a lot of friends who are on faculty there um and i've given a number of talks there um so i'm there quite a bit i have not made my way back to ohio state in a very long time not since i graduated in 2014 Um, And I was just at University of Maryland at the beginning of May presenting some new work um, because one of my best friends is now a professor in that department. So um, I'm there uh, quite a bit as well. That's awesome. It's cool to have friends and kind of a network at all these schools. Yeah. Yeah. Now you like had this path in political science and then you went into academia. Was that always the plan with that degree or did you consider like maybe applying it in different ways? Um, I think because of the way that I was introduced to the idea of getting a PhD, academia always seemed like a foregone conclusion. But there is, at least for me, always a moment when you're in graduate school, particularly in PhD programs where you're like, is this really the thing that I want to do? And so I think about my third year, I contemplated other kind of career paths that I could take outside of the academy, uh, but ultimately decided that the academy was the place for me, mostly because I think it's really cool to get paid to think about stuff that I find interesting. And so to have the ability to do that um, and to be able to kind of talk to other people, whether it be colleagues or students about stuff that we all collectively find interesting was very appealing to me. Um, But there was definitely a moment where I was like, uh, well, maybe the private sector wouldn't be bad. Um, but I, yeah. And so I think, and I think that if you talk to any professor or doctor, doctoral person in, um, in the academy there, that moment, it comes up for most of us. 
I, I have no doubt. I certainly think that, like, I mean, you've been in that for so long, too, that, like, it, you can't help but kind of think of all the different paths in which you could go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but it is cool. Like, I've always, I don't know if I'll ever wind up in the world of academia, but I do like what you say of, like, getting paid to think and research and do things that you're really passionate about, like, is yeah. a really cool job. Yeah. And it's one, it's kind of a weird, like, secret society because <laughs> no one really knows what professors or the academy is actually about. I mean, you until you're in it. And even yeah. then, I'm still discovering it. But I think from a student perspective, you see us as kind of teachers. Um, mm -hmm. And very rarely, I mean, you know, do we discuss kind of the processes of, re of the research that we do? Um, and so it's kind of this very strange world that has a very kind of particular front facing component to it. Um, and then there's this entire other world that's happening behind the scenes that very few people know about, depending on, you know, how we're the kind of school that you teach at. And I think, you know, when we look at, you know, movies and TV shows that invoke kind of the professoriate, what you see is, you know, um, either some wizened old guy with like white hair or like some young, young hip person. Um, and those things exist, but I think there's so much unknown about kind of what goes on that it, when you think about going into the academy, I don't think that people really know what you're, what like a person is going into, right? And yeah. so that is, I think it's, that's fascinating to me. It is. You articulated that brilliantly because I felt that same way. And kind of the, the point of this whole operation podcast thing going on was initially it was in high school. I was kind of demystifying just the world of college in general, what student life would be like. Because even sure. that, I feel like there's a super front facing element of like the college tours and the things that all these schools trying to maybe entice you to apply or to join. But then there's so much else that you kind of don't know until you get there. And yeah, and like I love getting to talk to professors and people in academia because it's again, I'm like, like, I have so many questions. Yeah, yeah. It's and there are lots of questions to be asked for sure. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. Now, a, a big question that I've always kind of had and was excited to chat with you about is like the dissertation role yeah. and everything, because that is like, I feel like that word gets tossed around a lot. But I'm like, like, what does what process what role is a dissertation in getting a PhD? First of all, it is like the um, coup de gras, uh, the piece de resistance. I don't speak <laughs> French, but um, uh, but it's the it's the big thing, right? So when mm -hmm. you enter into a PhD program, um, the first two to three years are kind of very focused on, in some ways, kind of acclimating you to whatever literature it is that kind of is very prominent in the discipline that you're studying. And so the first two to three years feels very much like undergrad plus in mm -hmm. that you are kind of taking classes and writing papers and reading a lot. And um, but really the, the truth of it is, is that all of those classes are meant to kind of encourage you to figure out what it is that you want to spend the next, you know, however many years of your program and probably seven to 10 years after the program working on. And so the dissertation is really the culmination of your time in graduate school where you have carved a space for yourself research wise and have spent a considerable amount of time and energy thinking about this question. Um, and you have basically written what is essentially a book um, about this topic and studying it in, in a variety of different ways to teach people about a concept. So I wrote my dissertation on how it is that Black voters choose the politicians that they want to support. Um, and that came to me. I was I was writing, I had been reading a lot of work in um, Black politics and found myself very frustrated because I felt like there was a lot of oversimplification of the kind of concept of how Black voters choose who they want to support. And so I wrote a paper um, that ultimately turned into kind of the foundational work of my dissertation, which then ultimately became uh, my first book manuscript. And so the dissertation is really the moment where you as a scholar, you know, use your voice to answer a question that you think is interesting to contribute to whatever field or discipline that you're a part of. That's incredible. Yeah, you, you answered like the next three questions I had in my head, which was awesome. Like, I, I think that's really, really cool. Because I was going to ask, like, when you're writing the paper, that first paper about mm -hmm. it, did, were, like, did you know then you're like, this is bigger than a paper? No, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I wrote the first paper thinking, okay, you know, that this is it. And then my I presented it to my advisors. 
And they said, this is your dissertation. Okay. Um, and I said, interesting. <laughs> um, I don't really know what that means. And I didn't. Um, and and so it was with their, it was, you know, from their own provocation that I then started to really have to dive in deep because once you have the question, which is like the biggest and hardest part to find a question that's interesting enough, that's going to contribute in meaningful ways. But mm -hmm. then you have to figure out how the heck am I going to test it? How am I going to study this? You know, dissertations, you know, I think mine was five chapters long. So wow. how do you find, you know, ways to kind of test this idea um, and, and investigate it and, and interrogate it in ways that are interesting and kind of shining new light on things? And so, you know, the, the hard part is getting the question, but then the next part is figuring out how to answer it um, and how to do it on a larger scale. Yeah. And so that was was hard. I have no doubt. How did it how did it go though? How did you kind of figure out the way going through that? Um, lots of random voice memos on my phone, um, lots of conversations with my advisor, lots of conversations with friends who were also kind of in my program. Um, lots of reading, um, more voice memos, random, you know, post-it notes. Yeah. And you just kind of, you figure out the big question and then you figure out what the sub questions, like what are the things that you need to know um, in order to make it feel like you've answered this question sufficiently. And so that I think, and you know, trade secret, but they don't really teach you how to write a dissertation in a PhD program. It's okay. kind of, you just kind of intuit. Okay. It's, it's yeah, exactly. Um, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, you are taught how to think about finding questions, but not necessarily on the scale as law on a scale as large as a dissertation. And so, you know, it's kind of a fake it till you make it situation, um, which in yeah. retrospect is harrowing. Uh, in the moment, it felt harrowing. Um, and so <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, but it's, it is, I think ultimately it was just a lot, a lot, a lot of thinking and a lot of writing different iterations of the paper and figuring out what kind of story I wanted to tell and what were the best ways to tell that story, you know, to a broader audience, but particularly to my committee. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I like you bringing storytelling into it because I feel like I continue to find that like that that's such a big element of, of academics and kind of life in general. Like I'm shooting for a creative writing minor just to kind of keep that yeah. part of things going because I feel awesome. like it's really important. So yeah. yeah. And now I guess I'm curious timeline wise, like was this all happening University of Maryland? Like did you do your dissertation? Was that all one school or did you said you transferred? Did that kind of transfer with you? It did. So I started um, at Ohio State. And so I did a lot of my coursework there. And it was there that I developed the project um, okay. with my advisor at the time. And then my advisors left Ohio State and moved to the DC metropolitan area. And so I then kind of came with them. And although we were at different schools, we were still very much connected. And so the idea for the dissertation and a lot of the kind of groundwork was laid at Ohio State. And then I went to University of Maryland and continued to work on it there. And so what ends up happening is that once you have once you feel like you have a decent idea of what you want your dissertation to be on, you have to defend what's called a prospectus, which is basically kind of a, a truncated version of the dissertation. So it's kind of kind of an annotated outline, if you will, um, that kind of details exactly kind of the question you want to answer, what your what your answer is, and how you're going to go about proving that. Um, mm -hmm. And then kind of what you think the contribution of this work is to the field broadly construed. And you present that to your committee, um, and they kind of give you feedback and help you curate and kind of cultivate the idea. And so um, that the latter part, the prospectus part I did at University of Maryland. Um, and so and then I had a fellowship um, for a year at MIT oh, wow. where I yeah, where I worked um, basically without having any sort of other teaching obligations or anything like that. I worked for a year just on the project and was able to um, get a lot of the writing done there. And then I came back to University of Maryland and finished it. Incredible. And then after that, you also won an award for like best dissertation, which yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was, you know, when you it's when you're writing a dissertation at a certain point, um, you're kind of like, I'm ready to be done with this. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. um, oh, oh, what do they call it? Like when you're in high, when you're a senior in high school, 
Oh, senioritis? Yes, that's literally it. <laughs> Dissertationitis. So, exactly, and it's contagious. Oh, um, no. And I had it. And so by the end of it, you're like, oh, I just want this to be finished. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely got to that place where I was kind of like, let's just get this thing done. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a very, uh, I won't lie, it was not easy. Um, and I liked my project, which kind of made it a little bit better, but it was still a difficult kind of thing to have to do uh mm -hmm. but yeah yeah i mean but then after the fact you ended up putting it into a book manuscript though like did you get yes. did you kind of have some time to like let that dissertation i just settle and then jump back into it oh or? i absolutely took i think i probably took about a year of working like on the project but not on the book Okay. Um, and I really, that was, I was grateful for that. And I also, you know, was fortunate enough to have been invited to a lot of schools around that kind of helped me figure out what things needed to change from the dissertation to, for the book manuscript. And so that was also great because I think it allowed me to know exactly what I needed to mm -hmm. fix. Um, and so I took a while to change things um, before I really started to work on the book manuscript in earnest. Yeah. And that that's current kind of like being overlooked right now from what I understand yeah. like so yeah. the process is you submit your book manuscript to an editor or to a I mean a, a press and when you um and then they send it out to reviewers and then the reviewers provide feedback and a sense of whether or not they think the book is worth being published or not and so um, I'm on the back end of that where I have gotten the reviews back and have had to reply to those reviews um, and I actually just sent my response back like an hour ago. Oh, so, wow. um, so we're experiencing this in real time. In uh, real time. And so um, now we just wait to hear back from the editor. Okay. Uh, and then we see kind of what, you know, recommendations they have, if they want to move forward with the book, what that looks like. Um, and so, yeah, so we're coming to a part of the journey that feels like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, mm -hmm. assuming all goes well. Um, but I can kind of see the end of this this project, which is great because I've been working yeah. on it for, I think we're in year 11 now. No, yeah, wow. That is a yeah. long time yes. coming. Yes. But that's very exciting. I yeah. wish you the best of luck with that. Thank and, you so much. And I have confidence to it and all the great you know, momentum and things you've received so far, like, but fingers well, crossed. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Now I got to jump in. I want to jump into the world of Harry Potter. And let's I just, do it. Let's do it. And I just want to start with what was your introduction to Harry Potter? Like when, how did that start for you? And before teaching the class, what was your general experience with that world? Oh, I was a complete and other, utter fanboy. Like yeah. I started reading the books. I think when I started the third book had just come out. So this would have been in the late 90s. Um, okay. And I was about the same age. I think I was 11 or 12 at the time when I started reading the books and I flew through the first three. And then I think the fourth book came out in the year 2000. Um, and so after that, you know, I was reading them when they were coming out. So I'm kind of the first gen Harry Potter person. Yeah. Um, and I was completely and utterly obsessed. I think one, because, you know, I just have always had a fascinated fascination with magic and, you know, mystical things. And also because I was in and around the same age of the characters as I was reading through them. And, um, and, and then, you know, the movies came out not too long after that. And so um, it really helped me develop a greater appreciation for reading. Um, <laughs> and and then, yeah. And, and so then after that, it was just, it got to a place where I was reading them probably once a year. I was going doing an, a reread. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, it's always just been a massive part of my life um, in terms of thinking about just, I mean, the world. And so to the point now where I have a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of it, which helps yeah. when you teach a class about it. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, that's kind of that's my relationship with with Harry Potter. That's cool. So you did like the midnight book releases and all that stuff. Or... See, I wish that I was cool enough to do that. No, <laughs> I normally would just um, because this is you know in the halcyon days before Amazon. So yeah. I would just pre-order them and then have my mom go pick them up for me. Awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to go to the, the midnight ones though so bad, but it just it never happened. Yeah, I also love how you said the movies gave you a great appreciation of reading. That's the best comment i've heard of the harry potter films i think ever some of them are like, like the first two are very on the nose with like what's going on in the book and then yeah. after that like i think the third one is probably the most cinematically beautiful movie in my yeah. opinion um 
But admittedly, right, I can't imagine trying to turn those books, which are a lot, they're lengthy. Yeah. Particularly after the third one into movies that are, you know, short. Um, I mean, if we've learned anything from, you know, Lord of the Rings and Titanic and things like that, you know, you can, people will sit and watch a lot of things for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I can understand why the choices that were made were made. Well, some of them, not all of them, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think the, there's something about the books that I think just work in a lot of ways. I think there are a lot of issues with the books as well, but like yeah. there are things that work well in, in the written word that don't necessarily come across on screen. Absolutely. And, and the one thing I'll give to the films is the scores are, I oh, think, forever phenomenal. Incredible. Like incredible work. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, how did it go from being this fan of Harry Potter and growing up with the books to I want to teach a class about this and really dissect all the social identity and politics of the Wizarding World? Sure. So I um so someone had posted something on Twitter back when Twitter was like the thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Um and about Harry Potter. I'm trying to remember who it was, but regardless, I responded and kind of said, you know, I think we I think they were making a commentary on Hermione and you know her work with the house elves and kind Mm -hmm. of and I and they were kind of patting her on the back and I said "Ah, ah, ah, you know I think we need to be I think we need to think harder about this a little bit and so I started and so then I wrote like a whole thread um and I thought huh interesting okay this is something to think about um and then I was mowing the lawn one day and I must have been listening to the last book um, on audiobook, and I, I I started thinking, you know, why is it that Voldemort doesn't just have pure bloods just make more babies? If the whole idea of this kind of pure blood supremacist ideology is, you know, pure bloods first, then why not just make more pure bloods? Right. Um, as opposed to, you know, taking Muggleborns and and punishing and 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 murdering Muggles, like why why not just focus on you know yourself and the group? And I thought, oh no, because it's not really about that this is about hatred you know this is bigotry this is and i thought wow that's a really fascinating way to think about teaching supremacist ideology which is often couched in terms of kind of like a pro in-group mentality like i'm just pro me and pro people who look like me or identify the same way as me but it often manifests as anti-outgroup right anti-other and so and i think people tend to justify their bigotry in terms of well it's not really about you it's about me and it's like well then why don't you focus on yourself why don't you focus on kind of making sure that your group has more people in it if that's your chief concern Um, But it boils down to the fact that it's not. And I thought, huh, I can actually teach this. Like I can teach people about these ideas without having to kind of engage those questions in ways that might make people uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And so so then I took back to Twitter and started talking about this kind of just a random tweet and people were really into it. And I thought, okay, I think I can fashion this into something. Um, And so it took me a few years after I graduated to figure out what exactly I wanted it to be. Um, but now I'm going, I, uh, my, the fall, will, it'll be my fourth year teaching it. And oh, wow. yeah. And so, um, yeah, but that's, that's kind of the, the origin story, if you will. Yeah. I don't know. It had been four years in the process. I guess it was just my assumption that seeing it on TikTok for the first time, it was newer, but that's cool. Yeah. Well, this year was the first year that I normally, when I had taught it in the last couple of years, I, it was a much less me, like I wasn't lecturing as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of would come in and say, let's, you know, talk about it. But this year, for some reason, I decided, well, I think part of it was because like our conversations were always good, but they didn't always tap into the things that I wanted them to tap into. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I have to, I guess I had to take a more active hand in, you know, kind of curating the conversation. And so from that, I started coming up with, you know, specific things that I kind of wanted to talk about each week. Um, And whenever I tell people that I'm teaching this class, you know, particularly millennials like myself, um, they get very excited and they're like, I would love to take that class. And so I thought, well, obviously I only have 14 students in my class and no one's going to pay tuition to come take this one class. So I thought, I guess I can just put snippets up online just to kind of share with people kind of what we're up to and what we're thinking about. Um, And it took off in ways that I did not and still can't quite fathom, but I certainly did not expect. Mm -hmm. I think it 
part of it i think that it's your one you're a phenomenal professor like i i love Thank getting you. the snippets of your style and like i wish i could be in this full hour long discussion because i just see the way that which you can guide this and i think it's brilliant and I also, th- yeah, and I think we're too kind of in an era where I think people are really ready to like dive into this part of the wizarding world, I think a little bit like I guess I'll ask this first, as JK Rowling and the perception of the author change, did your the way in which you engage with that class change? Uh, no, because I think I, the first year that I taught it was in the fall of 2020. So this is oh, okay. after a lot of her transphobia kind of hit the airwaves in much yeah. more explicit ways. So I think my perspective on what the class was going to be about in that I decided, I mean, I had to grapple with, like, do you teach this class? Yeah. Um, And if you do, how do you do it in a way that creates an environment that is safe for trans and non-binary people? Mm -hmm. Um, And how then do you also interrogate, you know, her beliefs using the book. And so I think in some ways, because so much of her own kind of transphobia manifested before the class, I was able to curate it in a very specific way to help us think about what she's doing and why it is such a problem. And even, and in more important to me, at least is let's find these things in the books. Mm -hmm. Let's see them. Let's understand kind of what's here, because I think, especially this year because I was much more intentional it is so clear like her gendered politic is so apparent in these books Um, and the class isn't really meant to be kind of a gender and politics class but ultimately that's kind of what it comes down to in a lot of ways because there's so many moments and so many things and so in a lot of ways her kind of outing herself in this way Mm -hmm. um, helped me figure out how to create a class that may not undo but certainly makes us more aware as a fandom, um, makes my students more engaged with, you know, ideas that may be harder to see if we don't want to see them. Yeah, no, I think that and that was a great way of going about that course, because I think that it's I think Harry Potter is kind of is in this era where like, you know, we've seen yeah all the transphobic comments of JK Rowling and how that I think immediately impacted a lot of people's perceptions of the series because it had attracted such a diverse audience of of people in the LGBTQ community. And then for the author to do that, I think that affected that relationship. And I at least even was realizing like I was ready to like dig into the series in that manner a little bit more and like I think it's cool to peel back those lenses yeah yeah I think it I mean the original intention of the class was because identity across the board is such a um it's tricky to talk about for a lot of people yeah um to use the books as kind of a buffer to be able to have these conversations and then all of the assignments in the class are ones that um invite my students to teach a lesson to someone using Harry Potter as the basis, but then also the lesson is about the real world. So then we have to kind of do an application, which is ultimately kind of what I want them to be able to do. And so um, a lot of what we do is is that, right? Is kind of diving in and then drawing parallels into our own world and what it kind of makes us think about as we do this to kind of give them the tools to be able to think critically, um, but also in a way that is both personal and impersonal so that they don't necessarily feel that they can't have these conversations with others. Absolutely. And, and it's a brilliant way of going about it of, yeah, like kind of like, oh, it's Harry Potter, like enticing people with this Harry Potter and then being able to explain these things so well and articulate it in a way where it can really stick out to people. And like, because you said there's that buffer, it just makes it kind of easier to understand in that way. Yeah. And then you can internalize and be like, oh, wait, this is the real world. Yeah. You know, having yeah. those yeah. moments. Yeah. I think Harry Potter does it. I think it's what makes this particular book um, much like better suited for this kind of work because um, J.K. Rowling really wrote what she knew. Yeah. And so because of that, right, you she does. And, and she wrote them for kids. So she doesn't try to hide any of these things. It's all there. And I don't think that she and I, that she thought that there would be this kind of scrutiny mm-hmm. of these books to kind of expose a lot of things. And, and I'm by no means, you know, um, the most critical in terms of um, a lot of the, the ills of these books. Um, mm-hmm. There are other people who are much smarter and much more deep minded than I am who have like done amazing work to kind of deconstruct so many other things. But I think what makes this book work for this kind of kind of interrogation is that she doesn't try to hide anything. And so as a result, 
it's a lot easier to see and unpack in ways that other books that may be more progressively minded and intentional about not wanting to kind of perpetuate stereotypes and perpetuate negative beliefs. It makes it more difficult, I should say, to be able to to see kind of the, the ills of whatever world is being built. Absolutely. And I think that you also make the really great point of like, these were books meant for kids. And now these, you know, kids like you who grew up reading them are in, you know, are, are now adults and have gone through, you know, academia or, or whatever those things are are now in positions for the first time to like look back on those books and like unpack it and i'm excited to continue to see how that goes yeah 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 it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun yeah um and the thing is is because there are so many books it's you know i always worry you know am i going to be able to keep doing this uh yeah. like, at what point am i going to have to start repeating myself i haven't gotten there yet and i think i got some time because there's always something that comes up that i don't think about or I, i've been doing kind of a rewatch of the movies and there are things that stand out to me in ways that i'm like oh like that never occurred to me, but isn't that fascinating? Absolutely. And and I mean, they're still churning stuff out, you know, yeah. like, yeah. like there's a video game that I have not played or seen much of, but I'm like, I bet you could do a lot of pulling things oh, from that. Yeah. And, and what HBO Max or it's got something cooking for the movies yeah. or the new the, adaptations. A, a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Which is going to be wild to watch. Yes. I mean, yeah, that'll be curious to see, like, should they go about changing things? Like, should they go about really diving back into the books and making some of those alterations and trying to correct some of those negative stereotypes and things? You know, I think it's really difficult because on one hand, I want to say yes, but, you know, it's hard to do because the world is built and premised on such yeah. kind of supremacist ideology. It's like, where do you start and where do you stop? Because by the time you really go in and kind of repair some of this, you've lost the essence of yeah. a lot of what makes that world the world. Um, and, 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 and that's true both in the wizarding world and in our own, right. You know, when we yeah. think about kind of what it would take for us to live in a, in a society without some of those kind of, or all of those kind of biases and prejudices, it becomes really difficult to figure out how, you know, to do that without just burning it all to the ground and building it from scratch. And I think yeah. that's going to be the trick for the writers is that, you know, she wrote these books in the late nineties and that was, you know, 30 years ago. That's a very different time, um, mm -hmm. where a lot of things were much more acceptable and the books take place in the 90s yeah. and so how do you do that you know how do you you know you have to be true to the time period um and so yeah i'm i'm intrigued because i think and and i mean and admittedly right the books are just not diverse right in any capacity right, right. and so to diversify them is just you know fan service in a way that's not necessarily helpful because most of the students of color or you know any of the other students who exist there don't really have much to say so it's like you would literally be adding in things yeah and it's like at that point just make a whole new series that's something different exactly yeah like i think that and it's funny that they tried that and it also kind of fell flat with the fantastic beast series yes like, exactly which I feel like, for, I mean, I haven't seen those movies in a hot minute. I feel like the first one had promise and then it just kind of went there down. Oh, it jumped the, sh it jumped, jumped yeah. the shark for the second. Yeah, yeah. So it, fast. Yeah, and it just like, you know, but I think, you know, for those movies, again, it's like, you know, I think one of the issues that The Wizarding World presents, particularly, I mean, as a race scholar, I think I think about this a lot, mm -hmm. is that, you know, you know, in The Wizarding World, race is not really a thing. Like in yeah. all of the books, it's brought up, maybe it's invoked in terms of just descriptor right so they describe someone particularly as black we don't really get anyone else's description we just meant to assume based on like you know names like cho chang yeah. or pravati patil that we you know we intuit uh, race but in terms of the in like the parts of it that there's no kind of racial discrimination i think pansy parkinson says something about angelina johnson's braids once and so when you diversify movies it it suggests this kind of colorblind society which mm -hmm. seems bizarre to me because wizards hold such similar stigmas about other things that you know non-magical people do so it seems bizarre that somehow race was not one of those things yeah. um and so yeah so i think you know it, even in the diversification of movies racially you know i mean and i guess in terms of you know dumbledore and grindelwald being you know queer um explicitly i right. think I think that even in doing all of those things, there's never really a discussion about that. Yeah. We don't like Dumbledore and Grindelwald don't really talk about it. And that particular relationship is so toxic, like nasty. Yeah. It's bad. 
And so um, it's still not a great portrayal of anything. And so we're kind of living in this kind of colorblind society wherein, you know, queer people are allowed to exist, but not necessarily be happy because at the end of the last movie, the straight couple is getting married and Dumbledore is walking down the street by himself in the snow, (laughs) depressed because his boyfriend turned out to be the terrorist that we all knew he was. And it just is like, oh, okay, so now you're lonely and alone and the straight people are enjoying themselves. And that just feels like why even do all of this if you're not going to be able to give people something really to work with? Yeah, that's kind of how it's felt with like a lot of that kind of retroactively trying to diversify the stories is that, yeah, like even in attempts to do that, it's not it's still doing the opposite. It's not giving them like the proper positive representation that it deserves. Yeah. And I think, you know, not everything in life for everyone is positive, but it seems bizarre that like there's no happiness for Dumbledore. Like, I mean, at all in in canon, in the Fantastic Beasts, it's just we don't see it for him. No, Um, his entire existence is kind of based on longing for the relationship he never got to really have when he was 18 and then kind of putting it, throwing himself into work. And we also see the same for a lot of the women characters. Like McGonagall yeah. has absolutely no love. In, none of the adults have any love interest except for maybe Hagrid. Yeah, um, sort of. But that-ish, right? And so yeah. I think there are ways to think about kind of what representation actually looks like mm-hmm. um, and how we, and what's the, what is the utility of representation? Like what is it that you're actually trying to represent and I think that, you know, the movies, I think diversification for the sake of diversification is not worth it if you're not going to actually speak to the experiences and the truths of these people in ways that are actually representative. Absolutely. I, yeah, I think you're right in all of that. I, I'm curious. I, I love like I love getting to watch these lectures and be like hearing you this in person is awesome. Do you have a favorite lecture or kind of topic or point of all of the course? Oh, this is a good question. Ooh, um... Oh, um, I think. Okay, so I have two. Okay. One is one that I absolutely stumbled on when I was actually just lecturing. Cause what I found is that I just start ranting and then something <laughs> good comes out. And so everyone on TikTok just gets the like good part. My yeah. students unfortunately have to suffer through me trying to think out loud and navigating like my ADHD. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so one is this idea of Percy Weasley thinking about um, how, like why he was willing to kind of abandon his family for the sake of the ministry and thinking about, you know, his position as this pureblood wizard who gets to look around and see all of these other pureblood wizards doing really, really well and his family is struggling and what that then motivates him to do and why he's so ambitious and why he's willing to kind of forsake his family for the sake of money and power and prestige. Um, and then to, you know, as I, you know, been thinking about this more, realize that all the Weasley boys do this, like Ron does this, Fred and George, they're all in pursuit of power and wealth and esteem. They all just go about it very different ways, right? Percy does it yeah. the more conventional way and going to work for the ministry. Fred and George do it by going and making wiz- Weasley wizard wheezes, right? And selling it at school and betting so that they can buy a joke shop and, and doing this kind of very, you know, capitalistic way of going about trying to, you know, pull themselves out of poverty because they know that their birthright as pure blood wizards is to not be impoverished. And we see that with the Malfoys. We see that with Sirius Black's family. We see that with um, Harry Potter's dad's family, right? They're all very wealthy. And we, and I think that there's something very fascinating about that when we think about the Weasleys because they're supposed to be our good purebloods. But the reality is, is that they are just people who, you know, are not super bigoted, but are also still, you know, craving for what the quote unquote bad purebloods have. So that's one, um, because I really just love that idea of complicating this particular family. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is thinking about Voldemort or Tom Riddle. Um, you know, one of the lectures I gave was talking about how he basically is a tool of purebloods because they don't want to give up any of their privilege and that when he disappears like Lucius um, Malfoy is like oh well he's gone so I'm going to go back to my life and just do my own thing but that they allow Voldemort who is this you know half-blood person who came from a broken home and is the product of you know all kinds of ills um, to be the face of this movement and you know and there's been a lot of debate about you know whether or not 
his followers really knew if he was half blood or not. And, you know, to me, I think it brings up a very interesting idea of the fact that, you know, people knew they had to have yeah. known because, you know, I, 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 I liken it to kind of old money versus new money. Even mm -hmm. if you can perform kind of the trappings of old money, um, it's old for a reason. Yeah. They always know. And in the same way, it's like there are what, 28 pure blood families that get yeah. on record. There's no way you showed up to Hogwarts and no, and people were like, we don't know who you are. And so, but you're a pure blood. It doesn't make any sense. So they knew, but I think it speaks also to how these structures allow people access because we see the same thing for Severus Snape. They knew he was half-blood and he was still allowed to be a Death Eater. And mm -hmm. so it's becomes clear, right, that this is really about ideology and not about, it, it, it's about ideology and supremacy, but that there's the kind of the mirage of supremacy and like we don't want anyone who's not pure blood is fake. And yeah. I find that to be fascinating because I think there are so many instances in our own world where that's true. Those are both absolutely fascinating and like just so cool and so thoughtful and such great insights into the series, which is just amazing. Like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious, you t you talked about, you know, teaching the class in person, doing that for four years and now putting them out on TikTok. And like, I, I love watching all your videos in just the comment sections, too, from what I've seen. Oh. Are like very interesting discussions. It's amazing. I, again, you know, I think the level of engagement that people have with, you know, the content that I produce, it's weird to say that. I'm just throwing it out there. It's strange. Yeah. Um, but that I think is my favorite part yeah. of it all is that people are really willing to kind of go there with me and, you know, think as deeply as I do about this um, and engage with one another. I think is the other thing that I really enjoy seeing is that people are talking to one another and having their own kind of side conversations. Sometimes they're having arguments. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that it the level of engagement is so cool. Um, and really, I don't know, I, it, 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 it reifies for me the idea that this this is a worthwhile endeavor um, and that there are ways to do these things. Um, and I mean, because I still kind of struggle with it, given, you know, J.K. Rowling's positionality and trying to avoid promoting her work. But I think the conversations that we have and people's willingness to kind of engage in, you know, self-reflection as a result of them, I think is really kind of what makes it feel worthwhile to me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's good to hold that nuance and to understand all of those sides of things. And I also think that people know these stories and people, you know, Know, like I don't think that it's giving her any extra profit and I yeah. think that's something big and I think that I think that peeling back and seeing her own you know biases and beliefs in the books in that way is is honestly a really good way of going about this world and the way after you know her comments became very public and very yeah. well understood yeah and I think you know what I've also heard a lot of that makes me very happy is that you know a lot of millennials now are parents yeah. and they want to share this world with their kids and I think about even when I was younger reading these books and some of the conclusions and and things that I would walk away with and how dangerous some of them are. Um, mm. And so the prospect of having parents who, you know, are sharing in this world with their kids, being able to kind of have tools to have conversations about this world and unpack it with their kids, I think, again, for me is so far beyond what I ever imagined this all would become, um, but also helps, but also like, helps me realize just how important this is that was a blast that was so much fun to yeah. talk all things harry potter and like to dive into this world and basically get to live out all the tiktoks that i get to see from you was <laughs> phenomenal um <laughs> now i would love to ask a couple questions that i love asking everybody just about the college experiences sure. and that so the first one is what is the most impactful piece of advice that somebody gave to you um don't be a hero i think oftentimes when you go to college you know there's a kind of fallacy of like i'm an adult now and i don't need anyone and you kind of go feel the need to kind of go it alone and figure out things all by yourself. And to me, and what I've you know found is that building a community when you go to college and a support system is so, so, so important. And I think that sometimes the kind of quest for independence can really lead an individual to feel super isolated. And so, you know, the best piece of advice I ever got was like, don't be a hero, you know, Feel free to kind of make friends, but also find your people who you can lean on and who can lean on you to support you all as you kind of navigate this world because college can be crazy sometimes. Yeah. Wow. I, I never really heard that one articulated like that, but I love that piece of advice so much. And I think that it is. It's so easy. I you know I felt that it's so easy to be like, ah, I'm independent and I can do yeah. it all and be like, hold up. Nope. Yeah. Wait like, a second. Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah. So 
do you have an ultimate tip for somebody going into college? Do something that scares you, whether it's take a class um, that you're like, this seems out of my wheelhouse or joining a club or just, you know, college is in and of itself, you know, it's a privilege for so many of us to be able to attend college to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also an opportunity to explore in a relatively safe environment. Um, and so take the opportunity to do that. I think, again, we can enter into college with very specific plans about kind of what we want to do and, you know, and we have it all charted out, know exactly. But I think it's also okay to, um, go into something and be afraid and to figure out, you know, on the fly, whether this is something that you enjoy and, 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 and explore that absolutely and i think i found that sometimes the things that scare me the most are the things that i enjoy the most for and sure e- on an equal footing there are some things i'm like this scared me i tried it i feel like i understood it and i can now you know pull back from that and realize that it wasn't for me too i think both of those scenarios are great yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. now do you have a dorm room essential item for somebody in college um honestly a mirror I know it sounds basic, but like, yeah, sometimes and if you can, you know, from what I've seen on TikTok now, dorms are they, it's a it's a whole thing now. And they're a lot better than they were when I was in college. But mm-hmm. if, if you can get a full size mirror, do it. Yeah, it's worth it. I, I completely agree. I move kind of moved out in like a couple phases in like the last couple of weeks just with like bringing stuff home. Yeah. And I remember I kind of was like, oh, I can like take the mirror back like a week or two before I like go back officially. And then I was like, and then I went home and I was like, mm, no, shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have done that. I need it. I need <laughs> I, it. I need it. I'm like, my phone selfie camera does not do the justice. No, 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 no. Yeah. You've got to be able to see the kind of full on yeah. look of it all. Absolutely. And if anybody has ways to mount a mirror, please let me know because it was a struggle all year. But uh, <laughs> um, but it, it worked. I think that like a small table would have been perfect. But I tried so many different kinds of tape and none of them. Like, yeah, worked. it's tricky. And like you don't and it's a mirror. So you want to be yeah. careful because you don't want it to like shatter. Exactly. Because that's bad luck among exactly. glass around your floor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, do you have a moment from all the way back in high school that still kind of comes to mind? Um, I think so. There was a moment. So like at my high school, we have this like awards day and I had an ex- and there was like um, these awards that were given out to kind of students who embodied kind of the mission statement of my high school. And they were given out to, I think, maybe 10 of us out of my class of like 115 and I remember winning it not, and very unexpectedly. I didn't expect to win. And I remember um, in order, like before they give you the award, you like the, the head of school reads kind of a listing or kind of a, a mini bio about the student and kind of different perspectives that teachers have of them. And I remember listening to her read mine and thinking, who is that guy? Uh, and when they called my name, I was really surprised because I was like, oh, that's me. And it's funny because whenever I have moments of kind of self-doubt or questions about, you know, why I do what I do, I go and read that speech. Oh, wow. um, and just a reminder, I think it's one of those things where there are moments in your life where people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And it's... I think always a nice to have that reminder of what other people see in you so that you can try to figure out a way to get at least closer to where they see you. And so for me, that moment stands out to me as like a big one because I, it was definitely a moment where like my imposter syndrome was in full force and I had to kind of jump out of it and be gracious enough to receive not only the award itself, but the kind of accolades and the description of myself that didn't really resonate with me at the time. Yeah. I think that that's a really brilliant story. And I love hearing that because I think it's true. It's always so special to like one imposter syndrome, I think is so real, especially in high school, college, I mean, throughout life but like in that kind of as you're kind of coming into yourself era definitely feel it and I think that like I was had a similar moment when I I asked a couple teachers for letters of recommendation and Mm -hmm. I remember reading them and like being on the verge of tears of like feeling just so seen and so like and just the accolades and the way that people saw me was something that I hadn't seen in myself all the time and so yeah absolutely really special yeah Yeah. now uh, as a part of a podcast we also have a playlist the school survival playlist and I'm curious do you have any songs that you would like to add to a school survival playlist Oh, okay. 
Um, it's going to be Beyonce. I just awesome. figure out which one. Um, I think, okay, so the one that comes to my head immediately is Irreplaceable um, because one, it's just a certified bop, but also because I think I just, I love like the message of the song, not necessarily the like cheating part, but just the idea of like, I'm amazing. And <laughs> like, there are moments where just like, you've just got it to the left, to the left, not necessarily a person, but maybe an experience, maybe, I don't know, anything. And I think that song just really hits the nail on the head in a, in a, in a fantastic way. And it's like a perfect song when you're late to class and you have to get there. It's great <laughs> to put on because it really empowers you to move. Yeah, that's incredible. Perfect. No, I, I'm like, anytime people have Beyonce to the playlist, I'm like, let's go. Let's like, go. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's such an eclectic mix and I love it dearly um, because it's just like talking to students, you get some talking to professors, you get very other picks, especially sure. like departments and backgrounds oh. and things. So it's, it's brilliant. And I love it. So. Final question is, what would you tell your freshman self in high school and then your college self when you just started undergrad and then when you started your process to get a doctorate? Okay, okay, okay. Freshman year. Oh, well, okay. Um, I would tell my freshman year high school self, like, you will get taller <laughs> and uh, braces don't last forever. Um, I would tell my freshman year of college self, um, I'm trying to remember who that person was. Um, oh, just, yeah, calm down. <laughs> uh, just relax. Everything's going to be all right. Um, and then when I started my PhD program, I think I would tell my, that person, and I remember him the most, I think, um, you belong here. Like mm -hmm. you, it all felt very happenstance to arrive at you know, at Ohio State as a PhD student. Um, but that, you know, I think if I could, yeah, tell myself anything is that you belong where you are. Yeah, that's amazing. All three of those pieces of advice are very relevant. And I think they hit really well on each phase of yeah. that experience. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. We've kind of, of reached the end of the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Do you have anything plug, share, promotes all the shout outs? Um, if you are into Harry Potter and like critical thinking, feel free to to follow me on TikTok at uh, Prof W P R O F W, uh, where I just sit around and pretty much rant like I did here uh, yeah. about Harry Potter. Um, it's fun. Join the conversation. Uh, yeah, that's it. No, they're amazing. There's also uh, if you go deep enough, there is reactions to uh, Game oh, of Thrones. Oh, Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. There's a there, little singing in there. Yeah, uh, the singing's great. You have a phenomenal voice. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah. I, when I started my TikTok, I just was like, I'll do whatever I want. And then the Harry yeah. Potter took off and it's like, oh, so now this is my brand. And so, yeah, I'm I'm contemplating making like a personal TikTok where it's just me like singing along to songs and stuff just because it's fun. Yeah, no, I completely hear that. It's definitely, it's funny how like your brand on TikTok is usually more thrust upon you than anything yes, else. Yes, exactly. And once you're there, I feel like I don't want to break the streak of it. Yeah. And, um, and so now I'm like, well, we'll just leave that there and let it be what it is and then we'll just move into i'll just create something else that's more for me um than you know what i do for for tiktok now but and i'm okay with that because i yeah. really enjoy it absolutely i i can see that too your enthusiasm your passion for the whole thing really comes across and i love it so much so I, I cannot give as many accolades. Like it just is such a great idea, such a great content, such great analysis. Thanks. Bravo. Thank you. Thank and thank you. you so much for having me. This was yeah. so much fun. Thank you. I'm so glad that we finally got a time down and it could work out and get in yeah. talk to you. Like I've been jazzed about this for a while because it's just so fun to like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I just, I love the phenomenon of like seeing somebody on social media and be like, man, they're really impressive. And then I'll be like, think I could talk to them. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that little voice is like, you want, you should try. And I'm like, okay. It's so funny because I, I don't take I was I recorded a podcast for um for two sisters last week and and they were saying to me like oh we're really we were we weren't sure you were gonna like respond and I was like I do not take this seriously at all in terms of like the number of followers that I have and what it means and another none of that resonates with me and so I'm like yeah I read pretty much every message that I get um because yeah. I I don't take for granted you know just how I I just don't take any of it for granted because I also know that this could be like gone tomorrow and so I'm like. Let's engage as much as we can. So yeah, I I'm yeah. so glad that we that it worked out. Me me too. Yeah, thank you again. Of course, it has been a joy to chat to the listener. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Student Council. My name is Carter Dvorak. That is Doctor Professor Julian Womble. Thank you for coming on the show again. And then if you want to find us first, find everything at Professor Womble of on all the places and all the platforms. Go to that TikTok before you do anything with our stuff. If you want to find us, we have an Instagram and now a Threads because that's a thing. Hello. That's Hello. Hello. Hello.
Um, so it's a fun time. I never did Twitter, so this is my first like emergence. Oh, in, interesting. Which was so funny because I was so vehemently against Twitter for so long, and then Threads came out, and I'm like, all right, like let's do it. Why not? Um, like Mark Zuckerberg is any better? But I guess there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it seems like the app itself is a fresh start, and I feel like I from like from the perception that I had of Twitter, this is a much better place to be. I think so, and I think again, it's one of those things that you know the level of curation that we have on Instagram is, especially now that the algorithm on Twitter is the way that it is, I think yeah. it's a lot better to kind of, I think it works better here. I 10,000% agree. Yeah. Also, our podcast email is tucopod.gmail.com. Wishing the best of luck and the best of times in all of your educational endeavors. The student council is adjourned.